May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Of our seven sacraments that we recognize in the church, marriage has always seemed to me to be on the uh, shakiest ground. Scripturally, scripturally, that is. Personally, I'm very fond of marriage. (laughs) Baptism and Eucharist are clearly accounted for. Jesus did these things and told us to go do them. Confession and reconciliation, that's there. Confess your sins to one another, James says clearly, much to the chagrin of the reformers. Prayers for healing and anointing with oil is commonplace all over the Bible. The laying on of hands for something like ordination, you see in Acts. Confirmation, confirmation is trickier, but there are certainly themes of coming of age and declarations of faith. But marriage, if you've been to an Anglican wedding in the past 500 years, you'll have heard this introduction where we say something like, Marriage is good and given to us, and we know that this is true because Jesus performed his first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. You've heard that. We're saying his proximity to the marriage and doing a miracle there was giving the thumbs up to marriage, which slightly less than airtight argument for me, right? Jesus did miracles, a lot more of them, while sailing or while walking on water, but it doesn't mean captaining a boat should be considered for our eighth sacrament, right? We're in the midst of a secondary wedding ceremony, uh, season here at, at Calvary. You may have noticed by the flowers uh, from last night or because you were singing there (laughs) last night, or because you were any number of one of these people who give their time on altar guilds and flower guilds and usher teams and all the rest. Uh, And as we've been going through this season, it's been funny to sit quietly to myself knowing that this lectionary is going to be playing itself out on Sunday, that Jesus seems to be saying, in fact... Marriage doesn't really matter (laughs) beyond the blip of our existence, is what he says. Did you hear it? In fact, I'm arguing completely off the top of my head now, but I bet there's more direction in the New Testament about not being married than there is to commend the practice. The reading that all of us hear practically at every wedding, which one? 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter, that beautiful poem. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It keeps no record of wrongs. This letter was written by St. Paul, who I imagine keeps fit in the afterlife by turning over in his grave constantly every time this thing is read at a wedding. Because not only did he never marry, he also wrote, I wish everyone was like me and would give up this silly distraction of being married. And he goes on, he says, oh, all right, if you can't control your carnal lust, then get married, but let the record show that I am not happy about it. <laughs> and the majority of Christians in history have been happy to 
let him be unhappy and have gone on getting married. My anniversary is tomorrow, by the way. I just want to be clear. I'm not digging a hole about marriage. Pro-marriage. I believe in it. Uh, who was it who said, uh, believe in marriage? I've done it five times. <laughs> it's not true either. I mean, I believe it in a different way. I'm not, I would argue with St. Paul about this. Might yet, someday. Communion of saints being what it is. Premarital counseling is one of the requirements that we ask if you want to get married in the church with us. And if I did your premarital counseling, it would look something like four to six sessions where we ask difficult questions. When conflicts arrive, arise, for instance, how do we handle them? How does our partner handle them? Do we fume and say things we regret? Do we avoid and harbor resentment that simmers forever underneath the surface? Do we understand our own feelings enough to know the thing that we're actually upset about? How does our ability to honor and cherish the other, even through difficulties, trickle out into our decisions about how we spend time together, or raise children, or handle our finances, or deal with that annoying habit she has of leaving a trail of empty candy wrappers throughout the house? That one's me. But there is one piece of work we do in premarital counseling that I might use specifically to argue with St. Paul about why marriage might not be such a bad thing to undertake. We ask a bunch of questions to determine how much you see your relationship through rose-colored lenses. That is, how lost are you in the agony and ecstasy of desire that you are willing to overlook reality? the difficulties in the relationship that need work. Because it's only by removing these lenses, seeing the other person for who they truly are, no more, no less, not who you wish they were or what they represent to you, that the real work of love can begin. This is the joy and trial of marriage in my mind, to see one person as fully as you can, their flesh and spirit, their angels and demons, sicknesses and health, rich and poor. We rarely do this in many other places in life, or at least to such depth. You cannot choose the families you're born into. Friendships come and go, and of course marriages do too. The greater the intimacy of a relationship lost leaves correspondingly deep scars, right? We quote Genesis in marriage as well, that two become one flesh. And the divorce process feels something like being cut in half, even if that process was years of slow severing before reaching the actual point in time of a legal divorce, even if that process was necessary. Necessity is a poor salve for pain. There were times in my life when I was on Jesus and Paul's side here regarding marriage, though for the wrong reasons, I suspect. I bet you've been there, on the other side of some unimaginable pain where the risk of seeing and being seen 
on such an intimate level seemed foolish at best. I'm not here to argue out, you out of it, if that's where you are now. But when I've sided against marriage, my reasons so for doing so were not Jesus's. In his time, the Sadducees were a group who honored only the first five books of scripture, the Torah. And there was no mention of resurrection in them, life after death. And they reasoned if Moses had no idea of a resurrection, then it couldn't be true. The only hope of living on after death was by having children. And the ultimate tragedy, the ultimate death, occurred if a man didn't have any children before dying. If this happened, his brother was legally obligated to marry his brother's widow and have children in the name of his dead brother to keep him alive. The spirit and the family line could live on that way. The Sadducees thought they'd test Jesus, see where he stood. They took a popular riddle of theirs designed to frustrate anyone who believed in a resurrection and posed it to him. There were seven brothers. The first married and died childless, and his wife went on to marry the second brother. He died also childless. She went on to wed the third brother and so on until all were dead and line ended childless. So, whose wife will she be in this resurrection? Jesus responds that marriage is for this age. But there's an age to come where those who are ready will become like angels or children of God. In this age, The brothers avoided death by marrying, but in the age to come, everything that existed to help us avoid death would be of no use. It would not exist. His argument here really isn't about marriage or if it matters. He's saying that death doesn't matter. There is no bride to fight over because there will be nothing to fight over. Our rivalries, our competitions, our comparisons, our territory, which the woman certainly was, will be no more. I think the woman in the story is breathing a sigh of relief, if anything. (laughs) I mean, who knows? Maybe in the age to come, she would have been free to choose which brother she liked best. Not because she needed him to avoid death or family shame or out of fear or need, or even complacency, or because she was so afraid of being alone. Maybe the age to come values love. No other structure beyond the one built with love will last. And that's where the church landed on marriage and on relationships in general. It is a rule that the specific begets the general. Our ability to love another person, the person right in front of us, ultimately reflects our love of God, who shatters the self-serving idols we construct of him over and over. This process of discovering, I think, is one of these many things that we call sacraments. The ordinary, imbued with the divine, like seeing another person, and beginning to see Jesus. It's like picking up that plain pitcher of water and finding it turned to wine.